0: up on Word Matters. Words that, um, stink. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point times a word over time will take on a meaning that doesn't play very nicely with its original meaning, leaving a person who knows both meanings unsure what to do. Is the word still usable? Or is it skunked? Ammon is not bemused. Or is he?
1: A little bit over a decade ago, I was in a bookstore in Salt Lake City. I think it's the Sam Weller bookstore. which is a, a really lovely, lovely used bookstore if you ever happen to find yourself in Salt Lake City. And I found this odd little book, which was a collection of typed kind of onion skin pages put into a small three ring binder. I chose it because at the beginning it said property of Merriam-Webster not to be removed from (laughs) editorial floor. I don't know who removed it or when, but it ended up in a bookstore thousands of miles away. It was a kind of odd collection of things that, for whatever reason, the editors at that time, it looked like it was from the 1940s, considered important enough that they had some typists working for the company type up various articles or lists of words. And the first one that I read, which really caught my eye, was a, essentially a reprint or a retyping, so to speak, of an article from the Atlantic magazine in 1930 something. In which the author was talking about how 52% of college graduates, when taking a multiple choice test, picked the word invigorating as a synonym for enervating. And to me, this raises an interesting question because almost 100 years ago, we had, at least according to this one source, a majority of educated speakers of English using what is widely considered to be the wrong meaning of a word. And yet neither we nor any other dictionary that I've seen enters this sense. And there are many other cases where we do enter senses of words that people consider to be the quote-unquote wrong sense, and we do so because a lot of people use the word that way. And so that raises the question for me of why don't we define enervate as invigorate? I'm pointing an accusatory finger at the two definers who are in the (laughs) room with me.
0: I will accept that accusatory (laughs) finger pointing, and I will say that just because a number of college students answer this way on a survey, the word enervate is also just sorely underused. It's not a terribly common word. As
1: opposed to say, for instance, bemuse that we define (laughs) as to have feelings of wry or tolerant amusement. Yes. Is bemuse sufficiently more common that that is why we enter it? I'm not Questioning your judgment, is that the deciding factor here?
0: Lexicographers, definers, are encountering many more examples of bemuse in its various meanings, including the disputed ones, than they are finding examples of enervate in published edited text. It's not really doing much.
2: Frequency is the answer, which it often is.
0: Yes, I think editors are not coming across the word enervate in published edited text very much at all.
2: In either a correct or an
1: incorrect use.
0: Right. I do have a personal list of entries to review, Ammon, and I can put that one on my list, but it would be at the bottom of a list of some terms that are also in need of review. Most of those terms are appropriately higher in the list.
1: That's a reasonable explanation. I think that doesn't work for the Oxford English Dictionary because they've never paid attention to whether something is in current (laughs) usage or common usage. They really concern themselves with just everything.
0: All right, that's Um, right. So get on them about this, not me.
1: Right, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I will hassle them about that. But it raises the further question of if a word is evenly split between its correct and its incorrect usage, in actual honest-to-goodness usage, at what point does a word become skunked? At what point does a word become so unclear in meaning that by using it, you're of necessity obliged to stop the conversation and kind of explain which of the senses you mean, the correct or the widely used incorrect sense? I feel that bemuse has kind of entered that territory because it's very difficult to tell from context alone whether one means to make confused or to have feelings of wry or tolerant amusement.
0: Some of our listeners may not know this disputed usage about bemuse, because bemuse is such an excellent example mm. of a skunked word. Its older meaning is?
1: To make confused, though that's not its oldest meaning. Its oldest meaning was to be concerned with the muses. The literal Greek muses, I think Dryden used it that way, or Alexander Pope. But that fell off the radar pretty quickly. And, and yeah, It's to make confused is the traditional sense of bemuse.
0: Right, which makes more sense, even in relation to the sense having to do with the Greek muses. The muse may be the same in the word amusement. Bemuse does not come from a muse.
1: But it's close enough that people have been using it that way for a number of decades, in great numbers, sufficiently so that we entered this sense to cause to have feelings of wry or tolerant amusement. And again, this is not a case of us countenancing incorrect English. This is a case of we are obliged to faithfully record the language as it is used. There is widespread and significant use of the word in this manner.
2: Oh, absolutely. And to Uh, me, this poses a problem because a word like decimate, which also has disputed usages, in context, it's always clear what it means. And that's why, for me, bemuse is a word that I just don't use because (laughs) I'm afraid of this ambiguity.
1: Right. When you use decimate, nobody is going to think you mean to kill one of every 10 (laughs) unless they want to be a jerk, in which case (laughs) they will pretend to think that. It is always clear by context. I feel very similarly about the word nonplussed, which could mean either confused or kind of unbothered or unimpressed. Right. And I feel like it's just not worth the hassle of using these words anymore. So I kind of just forgotten about it.
0: Now, Amin, you introduced the idea of these words being categorized as skunked words. That's a term that was coined by Brian Garner of Garner's Modern English Usage writer of books on legal usage and also English usage, general English usage. And my understanding is that he coined this word specifically to refer to this category of words that has one meaning that is fully established, long-in-use meaning. And then a new meaning develops, and one group of people continues to cling to the original older meaning, Um, typically not really original, as we all know, given the history of words. But they cling to this meaning that was first one they knew to be established. Mm -hmm. And then this other meaning develops, and... The people who know the new meaning have no idea that the older meaning exists, and the people who know the older meaning and the newer meaning are completely appalled at the fact that this newer meaning is a departure from the older meaning. There are people who feel that they cannot use these words to communicate anymore because it will cause confusion or utter despair, given whatever the audience is.
1: That's an excellent, excellent background on the history, and and I think it is a very useful term. I would say, though, however, that in almost all cases, the English language just brushes past the concerns of people who say that skunked or not skunked. And it just runs roughshod over all of our kind of thoughts and feelings. And the words just take on meanings, regardless of whether we want them to or not. And most words don't get skunked. A classic example is obnoxious, mm. which I think Ambrose Bierce and Write It Right in 1909. Ambrose Bierce was this kind of lovely, dyspeptic, and acerbic writer. <laughs> he wrote a book called The Devil's Dictionary, and he also wrote a book of actual usage, which was just cantankerous kind of opinions of his. And he and a number of other usage writers in the early 20th century really did not appreciate it when people use the word obnoxious to mean irritating. Because to them, obnoxious meant exposed to danger, which was very much the traditional 19th century meaning.
0: Can we pause there? And I would like an illustration of that older use of obnoxious, which has completely fallen away. It means subject to danger. So, for example, your child is at the cabinet and getting out a chemical and you say, you're obnoxious. You are exposed yes. to danger. <laughs>
2: right.
0: Okay. Yeah, I've never used that sense of obnoxious.
1: The OED has a lot of great citations. We are obnoxious to so many accidents. They render themselves obnoxious to the justice of God. These are all 18th century uses. I am indeed obnoxious to disasters. So this is a very distinct sense from the one in which we use it now. In the early 20th century, people were saying that this word is skunked because it means this and it means this. And in fact, it now just does not mean exposed to danger for the most part. That usage has just fallen away completely. So I think it's possible that even though we right now feel like Well, bemused and nonplussed and enervate even, that these meanings are inextricably bound together and confusing and you just can't tell. I think in a hundred years, people are going to say, ha, you know, they used to use bemused to mean confused. Isn't that weird? Nobody uses it that way anymore. I think that that is the likely outcome for most of these words.
0: I agree. I think that especially for nonplussed and bemused, I agree. I think they are headed toward solely carrying their newer meanings.
2: And so if we're living in this period where both coexist, so we're kind of a transitional phase, it's interesting to me, and I love this term skunked. I think it's useful for exactly identifying this kind of thing. It's interesting to think of the idea that you've both expressed, which is that somehow the authority comes from antiquity. Whatever it originally meant, that's the right one, which I have to say that has been the reflex of lexicographers for most of the history of dictionary making. If you look at the definitions of words that are based on Latin, like this one, definitions from the 1600s and 1700s in dictionaries, and even later, often the definition is is really a translation of the Latin. And so you get someone like Webster or Johnson saying, well, this is what this word means. It can only mean this because that's what it meant in Latin, which, of course, really is not the way language works, and we all know that. And yet the authority of that antiquity seems to hold People criticize the use of literally, the word literally in its figurative sense, as in I literally died laughing, where it's clear that you don't mean literally in the literal sense. And people really notice that one. They hate that one. And yet there are so many other words that are used in that way to convey meaningless intensity to a sentence without adding meaning. And we don't object to all of them. It's just we object to the ones we know about or notice.
0: Modern lexicographers are deeply committed to writing definitions that reflect actual usage, and modern lexicographers also have access to collections of usage, to corpora that show these words in their natural context, in the situations that they are actually used in. Johnson right. and Webster didn't really well, have of course. much of
2: that. Exactly. So harking back to Latin really was the job that they perceived themselves to have, and that's no longer true for us.
0: You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. More on skunked words ahead. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
2: Word Matters listeners get 25% off all dictionaries and books at shop.merriam-webster.com by using the promo code matters at checkout. That's matters, M-A-T-T-E-R-S, at I'm
1: Amon Shea. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com.
2: I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for The Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at NEPM.org.
0: Our conversation about skunked words continues.
1: I still feel that Enervate should have the extended sense defined. That's a view of mine that is probably not widely shared, perhaps not by professional (laughs) lexicographers, and I'm almost certain not shared widely by our audience. I think that it's hypocritical of us as ostensible catalogers of the language to overly refine where we place our gaze. And I think that when we say, well, we only do edited prose, I feel like we're doing a disservice to the spoken language. I feel like there's so much of the language that's so rich and so varied that we just ignore because it's just so fleeting and evanescent. It just comes up in conversation. It just comes up in unedited text. I feel like Enervate is kind of part of that. It's part of the messiness and beauty of English.
0: I agree. And I do think that it's really interesting that this document you found, which I only learned about in this podcast minutes ago, it's shocking to me that you found that and that I'm only learning about it now and I really (laughs) want to see it. Maybe you can take some pictures and we can post some pictures with the transcript.
2: And I'd like to posit that I think the greater crime here is that this information leaked rather than what was actually carried in the information (laughs) itself.
0: Well, I do think that if editors had been noticing this use of enervate since, say, the 1940s, you are right, this should have been already included as a meaning in the dictionary. If they were encountering so much evidence of it... Spoken word is absolutely important, but there are limitations of staff and of just the amount of time that it takes Mm -hmm. to research the meaning of a word. In some ways, most importantly, we limit our defining practices to published, edited text also as a way to just contain the scope of the task. If we are really going to catalog all of the words that are in spoken English in all of their great variation... We would never sleep, and we would never get to, I don't know, pee.
1: Literally and figuratively. <laughs> I did I mean, that in the literal sense. <laughs> right. I agree with all of those things, with, of course, the aforementioned caveats. And here's one of the things, though, that I don't agree with, which is that I'm not disagreeing with you per se, but I do want to bring up, we talk about lexicographers, we focus our attention on published, edited prose, and that's true to an extent. There are other lives that these words have that mm. we're ignoring, and Text is one, as we know it. Newspapers, that's one form. And then we're kind of expanding our view from newspapers and literature to include things such as Twitter. Okay, so now we're broadening our view of what we think of as text mm-hmm. and maybe edited prose. There are other significances these words have. And, for instance, tests are one. And I am willing to bet that Enervate has a far greater percentage of use in standardized tests for high school students than it does in any real-world right. application. So it's familiar to people, but it's not going to come up in any corpora of use because we're not scanning tests. But I'm willing to bet that 75 to 80% of high school students at some point will come across Enervate repeatedly because <laughs> it's a perfect test word. You want to catch these kids and find out if they know what the word means. So I think it's heavily overrepresented in that. So it does have valence for people, even if they're not using it, even if they're not seeing it and reading it. So I think we should, in some sense, pay attention to words that have this secondary life outside of written words.
0: That's a very interesting point, right? It puts it in the category of masticate is a word that comes to my mind that I think I actually learned that word Mm. while taking the SATs (laughs) and then went home and looked it up. I'd never heard that word before. How many millions of people take these standardized tests every year? And so we could make a point of, say, reading and marking some standardized tests and adding terms to our files or counting that as evidence. That would be a a procedural Mm. point that we could make. I think
1: that, for instance, people will see the word conflagration in natural use, but they will not see the word conflagrate except in tests. As a noun, it's fairly common, though not common, common, but it's common enough that people will recognize it. But I think as a verb, it exists mainly in
2: standardized tests. <laughs> you mean conflagration, meaning a, like a fire?
1: Yes.
0: You know, a word that no, I, I feel is skunked for me personally is the word ambivalent. Because I know this word to mean feeling two ways about something, feeling conflicted about something. I am ambivalent about whether I should spend time on the entry for Enervate or I should continue Mm -hmm. my revision of these other terms I'm working on. But I know that ambivalent is used by some people to mean not caring either way. And so when I use the word ambivalent, I tend to include other information to make it clear that what I mean is torn. I mean conflicted. I don't mean that I don't care.
1: Right. So now here's the question I have for both of you since you are trained lexicographers. Do you code switch when you're talking among different groups? Do you change if you're, say, working at Miriam and you're on the floor and you're talking to a definer? Do you think to yourself, oh, okay, I don't have to contextualize <laughs> ambivalent. I just kind of use it in a natural sense. But then when you're speaking to somebody who's not steeped in lexicography, that you feel like, oh, maybe I do have to contextualize this word. Or do you just contextualize it in all cases?
0: No, I definitely pick and choose depending on my audience. Certainly, if I'm talking to my husband, I'm not going to contextualize it. And if I'm talking to other people who I think are familiar with it in the way that I am, then no, I will not contextualize it.
2: I think we all code switch to some extent, consciously or not. And certainly that's true for me. And I remember in the office hearing colleagues use words that I had never heard spoken out loud in a really technical, specific way. And I realized, oh, yes, this is a place where you can do that. You can just use these words in conversation.
0: I don't drop the word definiendum into my everyday conversations. It means word being defined. So. Mm-hmm.
2: But that was a word I heard quite frequently in the office. Yeah. Absolutely. and do you right. code switch? Right.
1: I do, and sometimes I forget which direction to go. And I've noticed when I sometimes will contextualize things for my wife, and she gets really annoyed at me because (laughs) she was a lexicographer decades ago, so she knows far more about this than I do. And sometimes I find myself explaining words to her, and she just gives me this look, which indicates that I forgot to turn my code switch to the right setting today. She is so bemused by me.
0: For Amon Shea and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster and New England Public Media.